Welcome to the Denton's Business Insights Podcast. I'm Blair McCready, the managing partner of Denton's Toronto. And on this podcast, we discuss topics and trends to help general counsel and executives grow, protect, operate, and finance their businesses in Canada and around the world. Now, today we're going to be discussing the challenges and opportunities for Canadian businesses in the transition to clean energy and the electrification boom. Decarbonization has become a central focus for many businesses. And while every sector in the global economy is facing different pressures to revamp and decarbonize their footprints, metals and mining companies have been presented with the unique challenge of supplying the critical raw minerals needed to move towards wind and solar power generation, battery and fuel cell based electric vehicles and hydrogen production. So here with me today to discuss the challenges and opportunities for businesses in this critical space are first Greg McNabb, uh, a partner in our corporate group in Toronto. Greg's practice includes the financing of public and private securities issuers, capital market transactions and M&A, and he's got extensive experience in the mining and energy sectors. Uh, Ali Amadi, a partner in our corporate group in Montreal, who leads our national practice group focused on battery and energy storage. Uh, Ali's practice focuses on corporate and commercial law, industrial projects, M&A, infrastructure, venture capital, technology, and emerging growth companies. And finally, we're very pleased to have with us the former Premier of Quebec, Dr. Philippe Couillard. Dr. Couillard is currently a senior advisor at Strategy Corp., a leading consulting firm specializing in strategic advisory services in the areas of government relations, strategic communications, and management consultings. Prior to that, Dr. Couillard served as an advisor to Denton's and was a director with British Volt Canada. So thanks very much for joining me today, all of you, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. So let's start by providing our listeners with a broad overview of what's happening in the energy sector. So what does this transition to clean energy mean? And Greg, perhaps you can lead off on this one. Sure. Thanks very much. I, I, I'm excited about the chance to talk about this today. Uh, this, this whole discussion starts with decarbonization and the related energy transition that, that's come out of that. Uh, when I started my career decades ago, uh, my practice was split into two polar opposite areas at the time, uh, mining and climate finance, and in mixed in that in responsible energy generation. But over time, those areas slowly pulled closer together and are now fully overlapping. Uh, as large consumers of energy and, and emitters, mining companies obviously have a role to play in responsible energy consumption generally, just like their other extractive sector peers do. But, but now mining companies have an equally important role uh, as you just mentioned, as the facilitators or the providers of many of the things we need to build a new energy system that will allow us to consume energy responsibly. Uh, but let's quickly review just how we got here. To slow the pace of global warming, if you go back a couple of decades, governments and companies around the world made a commitment to reduce their emissions significantly over the next, depending on when you measured it, seven to 10 to 20 years. By the, the end of November 2021, uh, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26, it became clear that decarbonization would become a core principle for business. Uh, un until that point, there was a couple of options on the table, but 
um, around that time, decarbonization became the kind of the sole focus. I was at COP26 and the buy-in from the business sector was unlike anything I'd see, ever seen before in my uh, couple of decades of attending COP, uh, COP meetings. COP26 was intended to be the meeting where most countries would figure out how to translate the ambitions agreed upon in the Paris Agreement into measurable actions. But it was a turning point in the discussion when business generally switched questions from, do we really need to do this to now that we're going to do it, what's the most effective way to do it? And so this was when the, there was a broader realization that reaching carbon neutrality uh, or carbon significant carbon reduction required the cutting of emissions of greenhouse gases that contribute to climate change, among other things. So all of that momentum out of the Paris Agreement in 2015, COP26, and then COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh afterwards and the G7 summits that followed, they filtered down to major mining events such as PDAC and mining and DABA in South Africa. And that really became the focus was like, how does that industry uh, facilitate that journey? So reaching those goals required the transition to electrification. So before we talk that through though, I think it's important to, real, to emphasize that keyword transition. So back when I first started working in the climate finance area, the push was to switch to solar and wind powered everything overnight. People were banging tables, you know, they, they wanted instant results. Uh, and it took a while for people to realize that that just couldn't happen. Um, but it didn't take long for people to realize, though, that not only was that an unfair and unreasonable approach, but it simply wasn't technically possible. And we'll talk about some of the technical challenges in a minute. But so a more practical discussion evolved around how are we how do we get to an energy profile in the future? Uh, and what are the steps along the way that match those expectations? So there's a lot of things that can be done to have a positive impact, but they'll not be part of the long term plan. So along the way, most countries figured out that the most efficient way to distribute energy is in the form of electricity. It can be transmitted across vast distances with relatively low losses, can be generated by multiple processes and used by just about every device we have in our lives now. So that's how we got to electrification as the medium and, and not some of the other energy source, sources that we've used over the years. So in the, the current environment, electrification is really that it's the process of replacing technologies that use fossil fuels such as coal, oil, natural gas with electricity generated from primarily or, or hopefully more primarily in the, from renewable energy sources like solar, wind, hydro and geothermal. And depending on the resources used to generate the electricity, electrification can significantly reduce the carbon dioxide emissions from certain sectors. So that's that's how we we match up the start of that conversation about why electrification to the ultimate result. It helps with the decarbonization challenge. And, and quite simply, that's where the mining industry comes in. So in order to achieve that electrification on the massive scale that we're talking about, there just needs to be a considerable effort to mine the raw materials needed to drive that massive technical technological transition ahead and build out the network, networks we require. Well, Greg, thanks very much for providing that that uh, detailed overview. So amidst all of this global progress, um, the question sort of jumps to mind about what's happening here in Canada. So um, a couple of a couple of questions. So first, what commitments has Canada made and what is the status of those commitments? And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, 
what's the impact on Canadian businesses moving forward? Uh, Premier Couillard, perhaps I, you could take this one. Yeah, I, th I think it starts with having a comprehensive strategy out there. Uh, fortunately, the Canadian government, the federal government has produced that. Uh, so has Quebec and a, a few other provinces because businesses need something to look at, uh, some milestones to, to adopt and, and some metrics also to, to, to get uh, measured upon. So that, that is something that is quite interesting. I must say, if I take the case of Quebec, it's been well done by both the uh, Ministry of Economy and Invest Quebec. In Bécanco, a large industrial park uh, in the center of Quebec, which is now so successful, it's actually bursting, cracking at the seams. So that, that's a good sign, that a good problem everybody would like. Uh, if you compare the advantages of Ontario and Quebec, it's quite interesting because they are complementary. Of course, Ontario has a very rich and long and successful history in the automotive sector uh, with significant presence there. The challenge was to move these industries in Canada to the electrification era without losing the traditional industry that has been there for a while. And I think um, until now, we've seen some recent announcements uh, that are quite promising. There's a little bit of a yellow light flashing for governments here because you've seen the magnitude of public funds being invested or uh, spent in these sectors. And people are starting to wonder, is it a race? Is it an auction? Uh, where is it going to take us? What about the opportunity cost? So those are all good questions that are being asked right now. Uh, as for Quebec, the advantage mainly is centered around energy. We're talking about renewable energy. Of course, Quebec has a huge quantity of hydroelectricity, but not as huge as it was because, uh, strangely enough, it's victim of its own success because of all this, these new businesses coming. The demand on energy has been increasing a lot. There's still enough for new projects, selected new projects. That's the difference. Uh, but it's beginning beginning to be tight. So that that's also a changing uh, changing context uh, in uh, in Canada within Canada. So, uh, so I guess moving then, just to pick up on the the point you made, Premier, about the investment that's been happening in in Ontario and Quebec and some of the synergies there. Um, how has the government of Ontario responded to these various initiatives, and and what does that mean for businesses operating in in the province? Greg, Ali, maybe I could ask one of you to to take that one. Sure, I'll, I'll start with that one. But I know from uh, from our conversations, I know Ali's got some comments as well. Um, it wasn't long ago that, uh, you know, it's less than a decade that the province of Ontario and the federal government really were at odds in a very un-Canadian-like fashion over the federal government's imposition of a climate strategy on the provinces. And so um, fast forward a few years and, you know, that, that disagreement is behind us and uh, the province of Ontario seems to be fully committed to that agenda. So falling behind perhaps in, in timing and, and energy only to the province of Quebec in that commitment, which is, you know, it's been very well positioned and adopted it earlier. So, but here in Ontario, there has been a lot of talk at the provincial level about how that, how our province can facilitate this clean energy transition, both in its energy consumption profile, as well as in facilitating a national transmission system through the production of critical minerals. Uh, most recently, the, the government of Ontario announced uh, Bill 71, uh, Building More Mines Act, um, which as of now, I think is still at the third reading stage. So, you know, it's getting there, but it, it hasn't quite been enacted yet. Uh, but one of the things that that bill and, and other similar initiatives would do uh, is, is 
hopefully speed up the process for uh, implementation and planning of, of these mining projects. And there's a good reason for that, why we're not doing that, say, or why we don't have that focus in, in say, you know, a Saskatchewan or Manitoba, which they do have their own. Uh, they, there are, there's some mining uh, resources there, but uh, Ontario uh, and Quebec are both rich in the what we've identified as these critical minerals. And so uh, more much more so than other jurisdictions, but uh, also more probably equally as important given the timing challenges that we're both looking at. Ontario and Quebec have, we've got decades of, if not centuries of uh, mining expertise, both in finance, in uh, but in skills and government support. So um, here in Ontario, we, we have all of that history. We have the mining and processing capability, which is vital for this, this discussion we're having now, the critical minerals sort of value chain or supply chain, if you think about it. It's not only just finding it in the ground, getting it out. Uh, there's a lot of work in between in terms of processing uh, to, to ultimately end up with a mineral that we can work with in these uh, in the equipment that we're going to need. So um, it's a it's a long term game. It's and financing requires certainty. So uh, yeah, although those that that experience and the capabilities here in Ontario, and that I think is the primary reason that uh, it's sure. Ontario so well positioned. Thanks, Greg. Ali, let's bring you into the discussion. What uh, what what do you think in terms of how uh, what does this mean for sort of the businesses that are uh, that are operating in Ontario? Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, thanks, Blair, for the opportunity. It's always exciting for me to talk about this energy transition uh, matter because we, especially the fact that we didn't think that it come this fast, quick in our in our uh, time. So that's that's definitely exciting. Uh, with respect to uh, Ontario, I think in addition to all the actions that Greg mentioned, we can also refer to the uh, proactive role that the government of Ontario is playing to support the businesses in, in the development of the EV and the battery supply chain. So the view is that we want to develop a Canadian uh, local battery and EV supply chain uh, to help this electrification process, but also to create a new industry and create jobs back home. And let's not kid ourselves that definitely it's a very promising uh, sector for, for jobs and, and, and you know, uh, good quality jobs as well. Uh, and, and, you know, Ontario is not the only one. Other provincial governments like Quebec and, and also the federal government itself are they're showing a huge amount of sort of support and commitment. Now, uh, you also have other local authorities like municipalities, uh, which are also actively pursuing the, you know, the same goal and they're really supportive in this, in this process. So over the past two, three years, I mean, we've seen government officials acting actively traveling around the world, receiving delegations here in Canada, speaking with businesses uh, to attract big foreign direct investment into Canada and major industrial projects. Uh, I've seen tremendous amounts of funding, support being given to these companies, uh, big and small, so it's a great opportunity. Uh, and, and it's also a great example of this, uh, I think, of all this is, is, is Ontario, uh, uh, is, is, is the Volkswagen Gigafactory project. Canada is heavily competing with its allies in, in attracting these big players into Canada. And in the case of the specific project, uh, if you remember, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau mentioned that the US was offering even more incentive, incentives to the Volkswagen. So we can definitely conclude that, you know, at the government level, the various levels of government, uh, at least the ones we mentioned, especially federally, as well as in Quebec and Ontario, are really heavily supporting these initiatives and are committed to 
helping develop the electrification industry, uh, sometimes even at the risk of uh, you know, raising eyebrows and, and, and causing criticism for, from certain taxpayers. And, uh, but I mean, that's a different discussion that we can have at a different time, but it's, it's not a topic today. But you can see that the level of uh, support is definitely uh, very present. Uh, what we have to be careful here, uh, because you were raising, uh, rightfully so, the, the competition of the U.S. and the Biden legislation, the IRA, thinking that Canada outfeed the U.S. on money, I think is a tough, a tough gamble to make. Uh, yes, we can. We've shown recently that we can actually put billions of dollars on the table as well, but there's a limit to that. So we have always to think about what other uh, areas, what other uh, attractions exist in, in Canada. The rule of law, of course, which is not unique to Canada, but we are a peaceful and very democratic country. That, that's something that people want and, and look at us uh, positively uh, with. The other thing that exists in Canada that we haven't mentioned, because I think it's part of the internal ge geopolitics is the issue of the First Nation. Um, you know, nothing is really going to happen in critical minerals and mining, in my point of view, unless the First Nations are completely involved uh, with this. And I, when I say involved, I mean, not just receiving subsidies and getting a small number of jobs for the projects, but being actual partners and equity holders even in all these uh, projects. Otherwise it's going to be very, very difficult to deal with them. And with right to, I can imagine why it, they, are, they are feeling that way. So we have to take this into consideration. And Canada also has to lead the way in how to engage First Nations with these type of projects. Canada is not the only place where this issue exists, look at Africa, look at South America, look at uh, Australia. So these are uh, global issues in which Canada can be in a leadership position. And, and I guess, Prima, just to pick up on that point, so and how should how should Canada move forward in terms of solidifying that, that leadership position? Well, there is the United Nations Declaration of Aboriginal People that has to be a point of reference. Yes, it has a couple of, I would say, not so obvious points in it, but that's that's where we are. We need to take a step forward. And again, thinking that we can just dump a, a mining project or hydroelectric project on a traditional Aboriginal land and, and appease them with a bit of subsidies and jobs is not going to work. So that, that is something that really has to be front and centered, uh, front and center in government's minds. And I'm quite optimistic we can do it. That's actually a, a real life example of that. Way back then, in the 70s, the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement of the Crees uh, uh, for James Bay Development actually opened the way for these type of agreements. And actually, this community, the Crees in Northern Quebec, are quite prosperous now, largely due because of, uh, due of, because of this uh, type of uh, encompassing agreement, uh, full treaty, which I think needs to be uh, on the table, uh, and quickly so. Otherwise, we're going to be always dealing with these issues, project after project after project. Thank you, Premier. I I, uh, I do want to uh, talk touch on briefly the supply chain uh, issues that that the industry is uh, is grappling with. And uh, um, Ali, maybe I can throw this one over to you. So, what are some of the challenges that that um, are being faced by businesses that are operating in this strategic space? And and what are some of those supply chain issues that they're grappling with? And how do you see businesses resolving those? Uh, so Blair, that's a great question. I mean, it, it, the challenges uh, go beyond the, the supply chain. The supply chain is, is challenging, uh, and, but the reality is that we're, we're building an industry that is still young in this country. We're building it from the ground up. So it is no small task to catch up to our 
competitors and peers in Asia who have years of uh, you know uh, advancement over us. So we 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 they have the ecosystem and we're we're starting to build it. So uh, I guess some of the key challenges and these are this is not a you know complete list, but definitely the the, uh, the economics and the financing. This is a, we're talking business, right? We're talking about business ventures. So it's not it's not charity. It's it's the, it's a business. So uh, these are often greenfield projects, very challenging, very risky. They, it requires a lot of initial investment uh, before they even become profitable. So, uh, and even if they become, it's not always like they have uh, huge margins of success, of, of uh, you know, profit, depending on, on the business. So the, the big initial investments that you see from governments is, is really due a lot to that, to, to make sure that the initial funding and financing is there. And this was done in, in, in Asia when, when they first uh, started building their ecosystem. Uh, and, and clean energy is another uh, challenge because you want to make sure that you supply these projects uh, with uh, with you know clean energy. They're energy incentive, in, in, intensive. You want to ensure you have the greenest batteries possible. Uh, so you need to have access to good and clean energy. Canada, obviously, as as Philippe and uh, Greg mentioned, is it, a great place uh, for that. You know, we have uh, clean energy, obviously. Uh, it is becoming a little more scarce, like Philip mentioned, and, and more expensive. But it it, it, it is uh, still a bit of a challenge. But you know, ensuring to secure that energy for these big plants is also uh, an, uh, an issue. But in Canada, it's not as big an issue. Uh, finding the right land and that is large enough for these big projects is also another another challenge because you know you're talking about uh, gigafactories sometimes, right? So <laughs> these are big factories. Obviously, we're not only building those, but but definitely need large land. Sometimes they, these these large lands have to you have to go far in the regions to find them. Uh, large land that's ready also that uh, to meet your deadlines because these projects have high deadlines to and milestones to reach to get financing, and that is the kind of thing we work on a daily. And and often the challenge is, is to meet those deadlines on time to get additional funding in. So uh, with that comes you know the workforce issue. Already we're having uh, trouble finding you know. Uh, the right people uh, to 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 um, you know for our jobs here in big cities. So imagine even for, uh, you know further regions, it's even a, a bigger challenge. The training and all the you know uh, workforce, mobility of workforce. These are issues we're going to have to really speak about and, and, and address. And, and you can you can see already provinces uh, and, and authorities in Canada are really looking uh, actively to to try to fix this issue. So uh, supply chain itself, as you said, has a lot of challenges. One of the core of the supply chain for this industry is in, in Asia, uh, you know, uh, so uh, in, in terms of the actual equipment that you need, for example, to build the plants and things like that. So obviously you have to find it in time, you have to secure it for the, the right price. There's a challenge. There's a whole, you know, the mining uh, sector as well that, uh, that has its own supply challenges, which we, we will cover a little later. But I mean, we did talk about some of these challenges, but the opportunities are also there. I think uh, we should not forget about those. And that's why, you know, businesses are heavily investing in, in this field is uh, so that right now the opportunities in Canada, first of all, there's a huge support uh, uh, from the, I think, from the population of the government uh, for the industry as a whole. Uh, at least in many parts of Canada, and, and you know, even though uh, the markets are becoming tighter, there, there remains funds for this green green revolution. Uh, and, and last but not least, uh, obviously, all this 
you know, what's what are the opportunities for the for, for the businesses and for, for the people? And it, you're creating good jobs and, and a revival of regional economies uh, as as a lot of these projects are going, you know, in, in remote areas where there's land and energy available. So uh, I think it's an exciting time in North America for industrial projects uh, driven by this uh, this electrification. I mean, that's why we often refer to it as an industrial revolution or a new industrial revolution. So I think it's a super uh, exciting. Uh, Topic that we are seeing and time that we are in right now. So, I mean, certainly, Ali, in terms of the, I mean, you made a couple of comments about the opportunities for for the mining sector. So, Greg, let me bring you back in here. Um, so, how, Greg, in your view, how ready is Canada for all of this impending change, and what needs to get done in order for Canada to expand its presence in mining these critical minerals that are so important to this supply chain. Yeah, so I, th I think it's a, a perfect storm of kind of opportunity and challenges all at the same time. So, you know, we've got some shifting geopolitical uh, uh, reasons for a, a realignment. We've got the, you know, the impact of growing demand from our neighbor to the south and our ability to take advantage of incentives, not only incentives offered within our own country, but those offered with by by the US because um, in some cases, Canadian companies can participate in those. So um, so there's a lot going on, a lot of sort of mixing around that the mining sector hasn't hasn't seen before. Um, one of the one of the, th the fundamental aspects of the mining business though is that mining products are are, are expensive to transport and process. So uh, that's, that's been the case throughout history. So it does make sense if possible to sell them to our closest neighbor if there, if there is a demand for that. So that's one, one opportunity that I think we're gonna be able to take advantage of uh, just because of the timing and with the US suddenly having this accelerated demand. Um, but with Canada being what it is, which is you know, for better or for worse, uh, we, we are a very consultative co country. So in the category of not so fast, we, we do need to talk about the environmental approval process in Canada and how that needs to change. So um, despite announcements by the Ontario government, as I talked about earlier, that the Mining Act would be amended to speed up mine approvals. Uh, so far, we haven't seen how that will translate into faster action. So um, operating a mine, whether underground or open pit, it's a large scale project. So it's not surprising that mining projects typically in the past have taken 10 to 15 years to launch. Um, and maybe maybe subject to you know a, a bunch of inputs. Uh, it's a series of steps uh, with you know some significant uh, involvement of other groups. Uh, it used to be in the old days when I started as a lawyer, um, you had to listen to people who had a legal right to tell you what to do. So your shareholders, your directors, your uh, your creditors, your the governments that would fund you. And uh, suddenly we had this evolving concept of stakeholders. And so, Blair, when you talk about now about get it, how ready are we, uh, the number of stakeholders that Canadian mining companies have to listen to now, not only is it significantly increased from uh, just those with a legal right, uh, but it changes every day. And so um, that, so I, I think we're well positioned because as a consultative uh, um, country, we're used to listening to each other. And so uh, that's that's one of the things that you know makes Canada I think a great place to live is that um, everybody has a voice and we'll listen to each other as we as we change things. So, but that is also 
um, that's also the the challenge of trying to do anything quickly. So that'll be one of our uh, opportunities and challenges. So if if we get the conversation right, it'll mean that people get aligned and get on on side faster, and so it can speed up the process. But if we don't get it right, then as Philippe mentioned earlier, um, the the uh, uh, some of our stakeholders are are not going to be rushed, and um, we're it's it's going to it's going to create delays. So um, the and then if you factor in, the, I'd say the last thing just on that, how ready are we? You know, the other bubbling concept behind this green energy trans sorry the clean energy transition is uh, ESG and how that impacts the mining sector. So, um, but but we'll maybe save that for another conversation. So. Um, so overall, I'd say we're we're well positioned, but there's some work ahead of us. So I mean, supplying obviously these these critical minerals will be a big task for Canadian metals and mining companies. But um, um, Ali, uh, which metals and uh, raw materials are being favored by Canadian mining companies, and and what future trends do we see in terms of the supply and demand for these critical and strategic minerals? Well, Blair, as you know, um, and as you mentioned, metals and raw materials are highly in demand, you know, for the battery and EV sector. So first of all, coming to all these technologies, you need copper for wires, uh, right? So rare earth metals, uh, materials for silicon uh, and silicon for microprocessors, uh, which are components of the systems involved. So obviously, Western countries have issues with supply of all these materials. Uh, so measures need to be taken to, to address that. With respect to hydrogen, I would say the uh, fuel cell pump needs a catalyst to transform the hydrogen atom into a proton by uh, freeing its electron. So at the moment, the preferred catalyst is, is platinum. So that's another relatively rare and expensive resource. So the, the research is on the way for cheaper alternatives, but the challenge is there. Now, uh, as regards back to uh, batteries, which are important drivers of this electrification revolution, uh, well, lithium ion, as you know, is right now the dominant technology, but it does have its own challenges, which we'll, we'll talk about. But uh, as you know, there are two main components in a battery. Maybe you've heard of the anode and the cathode. So the anode is, is carbon-based, uh, it can be natural or, or synthetic graphite. It could be, there's also talk about graphene, but uh, you know that production is more complex and difficult to scale up. But uh, we do know that Canada is well, very well positioned for graphite, and we have uh, you know successful companies in the space. Even uh, you know in the graphene manufacturing, we have uh, companies that are working on that. So these are all promising sectors for business, uh, and Canada is well positioned for them. Uh, and with respect to the cathode, there are two main formulations. Uh, maybe you've heard of. NMC and LFP. So NMC, uh, this is the basically uh, the sauce, the, the, the formula that goes into the battery, let's say. Uh, for, for, for us lawyers, we like to simplify <laughs> these uh, complex uh, scientific uh, uh, concepts. So NMC is, is a combination uh, of nickel, ma manganese, and cobalt. So with specific challenges for each of the, the three metals. Uh, for example, just to speak about cobalt as as you know, the, the, the majority of the cobalt comes from the uh, DRC, and there are a variety of issues of concern around uh, that in the West, uh, or geopolitical and others. So I will not get into it, but but that's that just tells you, you know, why uh, there is uh, a tension to move away from this formula and, and go towards LFP, which is uh, a combination of lithium, uh, iron, and, and phosphate. So 
which is cheaper and simpler. Uh, phosphate is also used, but in fertilizers, as you know. So phosphate, uh, is, for that, we're competing with, with the agri-food sector as well. So this is another challenge. But there is obviously a move towards these, uh, you know, uh, uh, less challenging, uh, let's say, formulas. And, and, you know, even lithium itself, you know, overall, there are concerns with respect to lithium, the supply chain itself, uh, the capacity, the cost, uh, all the fire hazards, uh, which, uh, you know, you often read about in the, in the news. Uh, so these are leading uh, to efforts to develop alternative chemistries like sodium, aluminum, and other uh, maybe cheaper and safer or, or more abundant uh, sources. So... Definitely, there's, there's not a doubt that uh, there will be challenges regarding the supply of these various types of metals and minerals uh, that are required. So, so the industry is looking uh, to various solutions. One solution is, is, is that we're seeing is the creation of these international alliances between countries with aligned, uh, with aligned interests uh, to ensure access to these supplies. So, so there's an alignment uh, around the world, uh, and, and it's not just between countries that often there are neighbors. You often have an Asian country uh, in the mix, and, and you have you know Western powers trying to build these alliances, and you know that that's an important uh, uh, solution we're seeing. There's also the beefing up of the supply chain, and, and you know the whole mining uh, uh, production, and, and uh, that that bringing up this capacity to alleviate the pressure on the markets in the years to come. That's definitely another solution. And uh, of course, there's the fact of finding alternative solutions through R&D. So that's, uh, you see a lot of tech startups in, in the space trying to come up with uh, better formulas at a cheaper price, let's say. So, so in summary, there are heavy investments being made in these sectors and which are all, I think, very promising at the moment uh, and uh, for, very exciting for the business sector as well. Well, this has been a really uh, informative and, and thought-provoking discussion, but I do want to uh, thank uh, Dr. Philippe Couillard uh, and uh, my partners, Greg McNabb and Ali Amadi, for joining us today and for sharing their insights on the opportunities and challenges um, as we transition to clean energy and the related electrification boom. Um, also, thanks to all of you for, uh, for listening to today's podcast and stay tuned for future episodes on the Denton's Business Insights podcast series, which you can find on our dentons.com podcast page. You can access uh, other episodes there as well as descriptions for each topic and information on our, uh, on our guests. Now, Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices, and thanks again for joining us today.